0: Like a spider, he looks like a bug. we should all just
1: give him one big hug. A look Luke, he comes a Hello, my name is Holly Lewis.
2: I'm Losenkinni
1: and I
3: am Jean Lewis.
1: And welcome to the Long Watch where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have moved back into Superhero territory my territory, with Spider-Man. This is starring Tobey Maguire, directed by Sam Raimi. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about what we're seeing within the week. Now, Lawson, we all watched a movie in the cinemas together. We did. So why don't we start with that?
2: Sure. Well, the film we all saw was F9, the infuriatingly titled ninth film in the Fast and Furious series. It's an action movie directed by Justin Lin, the director of 3, 4, 5 and 6 returning to the franchise after a couple off. In it, Dom, played again by Vin Diesel, and Letty, played by Michelle Rodriguez, they're retired, but they return to the gang after a rogue special forces troop steal a secret weapon that does insane things. You really wonder why they would build such a thing, but Dom discovers that these special forces operatives are led by his brother, heretofore unmentioned, named Jacob, played by John Cena. So, what do we all think of this? What do you guys think? I
1: thought it was fine. It's a Fast and the Furious movie, so you're going in expecting a certain type of film. I did enjoy my time with it. It's deeply absurd. You could see from the trailers that they shoot a car into space. They also play around with magnets. Now, I don't know if they understand that cars are predominantly made out of metal, magnetic metals, but the magnet shouldn't work.
2: Well, not in the way that they presented. It should... It should work, but it should also cause the car that it is in to implode upon itself.
1: Also, a
3: severe lack of shits to give about collateral damage in this film. I loved it, but my god, it's like they've never heard that people do sit in parked cars before.
2: Oh, that's sort of been something that the series has had lurking in the background if you think too much about it for a while now. I mean, at the end of the fifth one, they drove big trucks through the streets of Rio with a bank safe behind them on a rope, on a chain, just swinging around the place and taking out the fronts of buildings. And we're supposed to just accept and pretend that that hasn't killed anyone, but of course it has.
3: This film is ridiculous. It is deeply insane, and I loved every second of it.
1: One element I found really interesting is they tie back to the first movie in a lot of ways. Mm. There was some flashbacks set before the first movie. Yeah. And in those flashbacks, they sort of emulate that visual style. Like, they add in a lot of film grain. The coloring is more in line with that first Fast and the Furious film. And we get to see more of Dom's backstory. Some yeah. really key moments.
2: We get to see him beat a man with a wrench. Mm-hmm. Yes. His secret power. Yes. Yes. When he gets added to Super Smash Brothers, that's the, the ultimate.
1: Final Smash. Just one hit in the head with a wrench.
2: Yeah, and then Mario has to go and work as a janitor at a public school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had a great time with this. It's bonkers. It has surpassed Seven, and it's crazy. I do think Seven still is the best of these. Oh, yeah, Hmm. of course. And it is hilariously cheesy, but it's not an unaware movie, though. It's sort of commenting on itself at this point. There's this running running gag where... uh, Roman is obsessed with the fact that they have survived all of these things and continue to survive all of these things and begins to theorize out loud that they are actually immortal. It's commenting on itself and its own craziness at this point.
1: He's so close to peering behind the veil.
2: And you need to be on board for the silliness here. It's gone full on Saints Row. And I, I know that there's, if you go to the IMDb page, I mean, this isn't out in America yet. At the time we're recording this, it isn't. But the IMDb page is full of people who are just like, oh, it's science fiction now, it's not about cars anymore. I wonder where they've been for the last 10 years, but no, it isn't (laughs) about cars anymore. It hasn't been for a long time. But you need to be on board with this, because if you're not, then this will cause problems for you, because it is the series' most unbelievable entry. Oh, yeah. The stuff that happens in this is just absurd. And... All of the convoluted revelations and backstory stuff, it's fun, but it's a bit shallow. The resurrection of Han, as seen in the trailers, is a kind of a bizarre non-event in the film for all of the impact it has on things. Mm. And the jacob Dom thing has no emotional weight whatsoever. I don't—I really don't see much chemistry between Vin Diesel and John Cena. The
1: two actors that get to play the younger
3: versions have good. more of it. Yeah. John Cena is doing a fine job, though. He's not really given anything to do.
2: No one in these movies is ever really given heavy lifting, <laughs> but they all acquit themselves well. You get Helen
1: Mirren driving a car.
2: Yeah, they need to stop teasing me with Helen Mirren. She she keeps turning up in these movies for like a scene or two, but I need her to be like fully in part of the gang doing these insane fist fights with the rest Show of
1: Show up at the barbecue at the end. Yes. But she's just got a glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> yes. That has to be part of The Lost and The Furious. It's yeah, got to be.
2: It has to be. But she and Vin Diesel have more sexual chemistry than Vin Diesel and Michelle Rodriguez have.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they really
3: insane. do. And it's like, oh, they in this one.
2: Yeah, they are <laughs> flirting so hard in their scene together. <laughs> it, it sets up a, a lot of potential for this last two-part finale film yeah. that was announced in October, I think. Justin Lin is apparently set to return as director for both of them. I mean, they've got to bring back pretty much everyone, don't they? I mean, Absolutely. all of the characters that are still living, maybe even resurrecting a few of the characters that have died because they've done that enough.
1: Yeah, nothing's stopping them, really.
2: Yeah, and God, if they're going to space with cars in this movie, like, what What will be the final stunt? What will be the insane finale of the last <laughs> Fast and the Furious movie?
1: That's kind of a scary thought, the final stunt.
2: hmm I mean, the action here is is great. Car
1: chase on the moon?
2: Moon rover chase, yeah. The action here is great. It's insane. There are these brilliant effects that that CGI is like top tier. And the Brian Tyler score I liked a lot as well. Yeah, they
1: they give John Cena this really like chilling sort of musical sting. Oh, yeah. Which I found decently effective. Brian
2: Tyler gets to to pick a moment to unironically use a a tragic choir track. And I love it.
3: That scene was absolutely ridiculous, and I loved every second.
2: Moving on to stuff I've seen at home this week, I saw King of Texas. It is a Western directed by Uli Adele. It's a TV movie originally aired on TNT, but it is based on Shakespeare's King Lear. Hmm. It relocates the action of King Lear to the Republic of Texas, which for people who don't know. Texas used to be part of Mexico. They seceded in the 1830s, the early 1830s. Texas, big fan of secession, And they were their own little republic of Texas from 1836 to 1846 before they were made a US state. Texas still didn't consider them their own little place. So when the, when the US made them a state, that's what triggered the u.s mexican war here lear is john lear he is a rich rancher played by p stew patrick stewart and he's getting older so he decides to divide his ranching property and all of his land and cattle is
3: he putting on a southern accent absolutely yes. oh p stew <laughs> yeah my boy
2: it's incredibly inconsistent
3: Yes! Please tell me. Does he have a rancher moustache?
2: Uh, not really. I don't think so. I don't recall.
1: Is this movie very Texas?
2: I mean, I I don't know what you mean by very Texas.
1: Big, sort of bombastic. No.
2: So, he's looking to separate all of his property, and so he goes to his three daughters, and he gets them to tell him how much they love him. And one of them refuses to do that. She does love him, but she's not going to like perform it for him and so he exiles her this is the good kid claudia played by julie cox and divides his property between his two less deserving daughters Susanna, played by marcia gay Harden, and rebecca played by lauren holly and it goes badly and lear goes mad this isn't shakespearean dialogue this is this is adapted into i don't say modern dialogue but like western dialogue They don't do the where art thou and all of that stuff. It is, it is spoken, regular spoken English. And it is a pretty effective transformation. Instead of the French that are going to attack, it's the Mexicans. Instead of a fool, Lear has a slave named Rip played by David Alan Greer. It it really is amazing how flexible Shakespeare is, that you can take almost any of his plays and place them in an entirely different context, and the themes and the core narrative will still work.
1: Yeah, there's an inherent universality to it.
2: Mm. It also plays Lear's madness as dementia. Stuart is the reason for watching this bad accent notwithstanding. The accent isn't like... McConaughey, all right, all right, all right, or anything like that. Instead, he does too little rather than too much. And I think that's probably the better choice. I would rather have, you know, bits of British Patrick Stewart sneaking through than an incredible caricature.
1: Yeah, and going too hard into the accent might affect performance. Hmm. That's true, yeah. So you want to play it as straight as you
2: can. It is generally strong writing here. I mean, it is a TV movie. It's 90 minutes long to fit a two-hour time slot. So that truncated runtime means that the three-hour-long arcs from King Lear are pretty rushed sometimes. And it looks very television. It's clearly cheap. It is... A 2002 TV movie on a basic cable channel. I mean, there are some good actors, though. There is Roy Scheider, who is, is excellent. He turns up in this as well. It's a good idea that's been moderately well executed. So I watched Panic Room. It is a thriller directed by David Fincher. It's about a single mother named Meg Altman, played by Jodie Foster. She's got this daughter, Sarah, played by an unrecognisably young Kristen Stewart. And they are spending their first night in a new house. It's a townhouse... And he used to be owned by this rich guy. Yeah, he was basically one of those guys who never goes out. Agoraphobic, that's the word I'm looking yeah. for. And he had a panic room in case anyone ever breaks in. But he's died and three thieves break in on the first night that Meg and Sarah are in this house. Three thieves played by Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto and Dwight Yoakam. And they're looking for the the secret wealth that this old guy had hidden somewhere. And... Meg and Sierra rush into the panic room, but only then do they discover that thieves actually want the safe that's in the panic room. So they've got to try and find a way to smoke them out. This is a taut, single-location thriller. It's all in the townhouse. It's tight. It's claustrophobic. It's an excuse for David Fincher to show off what he can do as a thriller director. It is the Fincheriest Fincher movie that ever finchered. It's, it's all of his eccentricities all at once. There are these, it's been made fun of recently, like the the sort of unnecessary CGI swooping through the house, through the, the, the banisters of the staircase and through the handle of, of the teapot the camera goes through as it zooms around the place. But it, it's all of his flights of fancy in the same movie. Mm. But he maintains the tension brilliantly. There's excellent shot composition, fantastic editing, pacing, A lot of Hitchcockian moments. There's a scene where they're first breaking into the house and Jodie Foster can't sleep, and so she's sort of lying awake and she turns over to face away from the door. And just as, just after she does that, we're looking at Jodie Foster's face with the door in the background, and then, like, the silhouette of a figure moves into the doorway and, like, stares at her. She just missed it. If she hadn't turned over there, she would have seen him. Just stuff like that, very cool Hitchcockian moments that Fincher works with and the thieves of course they turn on each other Whitaker is like the okay guy in the bunch Um, and so he's sort of chafing at the increasingly extreme things that the others want to do and eventually you just sort of figure out that it's all a bunch of amateurs including an idiot played by Jared Leto and a sociopath played by Dwight Yoakam. You've got good performances here as well. Yoakam is really quiet and threatening. Patrick Bacol turns up I always like seeing him and he's good here. But you also get this like scene-stealing turn from daytime soap opera actor named Ian Buchanan. He was on like Days of Our Lives playing the realtor, realtor who sells them the house at the beginning. The character clearly wishes he was somewhere else. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. But yeah, it's a good movie. I liked it. Can't say the same for Trap. It's a thriller directed by Louise Mandoki. It's based on the book 24 Hours by Greg Illis. This came out in 2002, a few months after the television show 24 started, so wonder why they changed the title. But Karen Jennings, here played by Charlize Theron, and her husband Will, played by Stuart Townsend, they're the focus here. They have a daughter named Abby, played by Dakota Fanning, in her full-on precocious child mode. And there's this convoluted hostage plot where these kidnappers kidnap Abby and they're holding her for ransom and there's this kidnapper named joe hickey played by kevin bacon who is the mastermind and is manipulating the parents and he has a secret motive blah 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 this was not a movie that was on the list really it was a pack-in movie the the cheapest way i could get a hold of panic room was to buy a pack-in with this
3: so you had to take the l on that one
2: yeah i watched it it's it's utterly generic it's like a lifetime movie with a bigger budget the scheme is just too convoluted. Characters behave really unintelligently. There's no artistry to the construction here. It is just a conga line of same same hostage rubbish and the only tension is from the unnecessary threat of sexual violence against Charlie's Theron's character that runs through it. It is sleazy and exploitative. It tries to make us sympathetic to the kidnappers. It does not work. The justification that they give for why they're doing this is bizarre, given the MO that they also exhibit. Theron and Townsend are holding the thing up. Pruitt Taylor Vince is the most convincing of the kidnappers, but Kevin Bacon and Courtney Love, who plays his his wife and fellow kidnapper, they're just unpleasant to watch here. It is all of the worst of their shticks prancing around, mugging at the camera, and and being kind of sociopathic. It's it's the worst of those actors. Fanning, bless her, is the most believable performance in The Thing at the age of, what, seven, eight, somewhere around that. There's, like, behind-the-scenes features of her, like, being interviewed, and she's, like, seven or eight, and she's just giving these incredibly complex, like, character justifications and talking about, you know, the themes of the movie and things. I mean, the Fannings are genius, aren't they? Hmm. There's an SNL skit from a long time ago. I think it's Amy Poehler plays Dakota Fanning on a play date with another child her age, and it's like the joke is that she's just this mini-adult, basically, and she can't connect with this other (laughs) child because she's just talking about her work. The location in Canada looks good as well, but the film itself is workmanlike and it's a stupid title I, I mean yeah okay they had to drop 24 hours thing because of 24 but surely there's a better name out there than trapped i next watched the cat's meow it is a period drama directed by peter bogdanovich it's based on the stephen Paris play of the same name and it is based on the classic hollywood urban legend that i don't know if you guys have heard this about william randolph hearst and thomas yes. Ince. So William Randolph Hearst, the media mogul that Kane is based on in Citizen Kane, played here by Edward Herman. He's got this really young girlfriend, Marion Davis, played by Kirsten Dunst, and they are going on a cruise together to celebrate with a bunch of friends, to celebrate the birthday of Thomas Ince, played here by Carrie Elvis. He's the inventor of the Western, basically. And they're going on there. And also among the guests is Charlie Chaplin played here by Eddie Izzard. And so the urban legend goes, William Randolph Hearst caught Charlie Chaplin and Marion Davis together, basically tried to kill Charlie Chaplin, shot shot a gun at him, chased him up onto the deck. One of the shots went wild, hit Ince and killed him. And that the official story that came out after that, that he died of stomach ulcers, was just a a big cover-up. So this sort of just portrays that urban legend and what that might have been. It doesn't portray the most common version of it. It, it, It's that whole bit of him chasing him up onto the deck and things like that. That doesn't happen. It's a little more Shakespearean mistaken identity Mm. than that here. But it is interesting because of the Citizen Kane connection because Hearst was the inspiration for Kane. He was infamous for basically killing Orson Welles' career after Kane and trying to get Kane stopped from being shown. But the most common version of this story that here comes from Orson Welles himself, that this is something that he says he was told by Herman Mankiewicz, I think, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane, the co-screenwriter, who apparently says he heard it from Marion Davis's nephew. Mm. I think that's the etymology there. I might be wrong. I'm just going from memory. But the interesting thing here is that Bogdanovich is an Orson Welles acolyte. Welles was his mentor when he was coming up as as a director. And it's just interesting to see him tackle this material, which is, is probably like the biggest Hollywood myth, urban legend thing, in my opinion. I don't really think there's one that comes up close to it in terms of like prevalence within the culture, but it's very much a play. It's clearly based on a play. It's people in rooms talking, and it's extremely well written. The narrative sort of sputters actually once the shooting occurs. You're a lot more interested in the way all of these old-timey movie stars and producers and things the way that they interact on the boat and the charmed lives that they lead and the the back and the forth and and things like that dancing to the charleston i mean it's it's just a good little snapshot of time and place and people and that dialogue is fantastic uh it works so well and the actors perform it so well. And the movie has a surprising amount of sympathy for Hearst, considering, again, that Bogdanovich was an Orson Welles acolyte and Hearst basically destroyed his career. It plays him as this old man who is kind of shattered by the prospect of his girlfriend cheating on him. And Herman here really sells it. It's a great performance. There's the concept of the falsity of Hollywood underpinning it all as well, the idea that it's all a facade, that you sacrifice humanity for fame and power. It it doesn't really tie all those themes together, but it is there. And I already mentioned Herman, but the cast is exceptional. Dunst and Elwes are both great. Izzard seems somewhat miscast, but I do think she is good here. And Joanna Lumley and Ronan Vibert, do good supporting performances as well. And Bogdanovich films it pretty well. It's nothing fantastic, but he lets his script and his actors work. He sort of creeps through these big crowd scenes and watches this cream of the crop of Hollywood elite sort of interact with each other. And he knows when to keep his distance.
3: The way that you described the urban legend of Hearst chasing Chaplin around with a gun just made me think, that is such a Charlie Chaplin thing.
1: It's a real tramp situation.
3: Yeah, it, it feels like something that would happen to the tramp.
2: Mm. Anyways, I of course watched Spider-Man, but I also watched Spider-Man 2. It is again directed by Sam Raimi, and in it, Peter is trying to navigate responsibilities as a young adult, his love for Mary Jane, which is still unexpressed at this point, and he gets burnt out, and he basically loses his powers due to lack of interest. And unfortunately, that's about the time that Otto Octavius, played by Alfred Molina, gets into a experimental metal arm accident and <laughs> has them fused to his spine, and he turns into an insane villain. Yeah. This is a much more confident film than the first, it clicks a whole lot more. I think some of the sillier elements of the first film have been excised here, it seems like Sam Raimi is a lot more in control of making it a blockbuster here than he was in the first. He knows what he's doing, he's not figuring it out anymore, and it's a much better script as well. The dialogue is very much improved, it navigates all of its plot strands better. And it has some really good emotional strands as well. I mean, the Peter and Aunt May one. I mean, I really like that strand. Peter's guilt over Ben that he blames himself for his death.
3: Yeah. And that scene when she's talking up to the kid about why Spider-Man's important and all of that.
1: And then she has that monologue to Peter about why figures like Spider-Man are important, both in a in-universe sense and a meta-textual sense as well
3: people line up for them cheer them scream their names and years later they'll tell
0: how they stood in the rain for hours just to get a glimpse of the one who taught him to hold on a second longer i believe there's a hero in all of us that keeps us honest
1: gives us strength makes us noble and finally allows us to die with pride that's
3: Sam Raimi summing up superhero cinema in a sentence.
2: Rosemary Harris is great in all of these movies. Oh, she's
3: br- she's the best Aunt May. Hmm.
2: She is doing all of the emotional heavy lifting in the second. I mean, yeah. I mean, she isn't my MVP for the first movie, but if we were doing the trilogy as a whole, she would be my MVP.
3: The part where she gives him the money. Yeah. Oh, oh that's like
1: soul breaking.
2: I like the theory that she's figured it out, that she knows that Peter is Spider-Man. Yeah. I think there's a lot to support yeah. it, especially in this movie. Definitely, yeah. I think there's also a bit to support that the...
1: Robbie. Robbie Robertson. Mm. Oh, he definitely knows the... I heard Spider-Man was there. Yeah. Just stares at Peter. <laughs> <laughs> he figured it out.
2: There's a very loaded shot that <laughs> Raimi puts in there that would have very little purpose if, if it was not meant to imply that he knows, but... I do hope that Aunt May knows, because if not, then she thinks that Peter just got up and abandoned her at the bank and ran away when Doc Ock arrived. And you get great supporting turns from J.K. Simmons, who's great in all of these movies, and Dylan Baker as, forget his name, the one that turns into the lizard eventually. Connors. Yeah, I always like Dylan Baker when he turns up in things. Mm. The standout new addition here is Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. Yeah. Oh,
3: yeah. It's
2: a really brilliant performance, a really interesting character. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this more in the deep dive, but what the introduction of him into the MCU is all about.
3: Raimi is using a lot of his horror techniques for this as well like he did in the first movie when it comes to the villain raimi seems very interested in a split mind Hmm. where someone is being controlled by something that they've got no power over. Yeah.
1: Well, it's back to his, like, Evil Dead roots. Yeah, Evil Ash and all of that, yeah. The Deadites, Evil Ash, that sort of thing.
2: That surgery scene is so intense. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, That's the moment in the movie you're like, oh, right, he directed Evil Dead. Yeah. It's almost like the tree branches in Evil Dead.
3: Yeah, it is, yeah.
2: I do think his stylistic flourishes feel a little more natural here. He's melded them to the Spider-Man house style a little better this time around than he did in the first one. Harry here is, I think, in a holding pattern. And I'm really not that invested in the MJ-Peter thing in this film. I I just don't really care if they get together. But I'll go into more detail in my problems with that in the deep dive. It has fantastic action. The train sequence is top tier superhero set piece i like the tag at the end too with him inside the train with all of the commuters even though it is a little bit saccharine i think it really works and the cgi is improved over the first one but there's a whole lot more of it and it's more noticeable in this as well so that kind of it's a give and a take
3: it was good for the time yeah
2: it's available for streaming in australia on netflix if anybody is interested
3: and is one of the best superhero movies ever.
2: Lastly this week is Spider-Man 3, also directed by Raimi. In it, Peter is having everything go well for him. He's got the girl finally, he's doing well at work, he's doing well as Spider-Man. But this all turns awry with the arrival of the alien symbiote Venom and the return of Uncle Ben killer Flip Marco, also known as the Sandman, played by Thomas Hayden Church. This is sort of a really bad conflagration of events all happening at once. He is not being a very receptive boyfriend. He is neglecting MJ and not listening to her feelings very much. And at the same time, Harry is still skulking around in the background, thinking that Peter killed his father and finally decides to strike. And then he gets infected by venom, which brings out all of his worst, most aggressive tendencies and teaches him how to play the piano. And dance. And dance. This is the worst movie in the trilogy, but it's not nearly as bad as its reputation suggests. I think the silly stuff in it, dance sequences notwithstanding, they're not (laughs) that much sillier than some of the stuff in the first film. I watched a different cut of this called The Editor's Cut. Have you heard of this? Yes. Yes, I have. So this is not really that different. It's comprised of alternate takes, a few dialogue alterations. There are scenes that have been moved around in the film. There are a couple of added scenes, some stuff that has been taken out as well, and they've restored some of the original Christopher Young music in places that he had planned before they decided to bring Danny Elfman in to basically shoehorn Elfman in to work with him.
3: They flew in a lot of tracks from the second Mm. and first movie too.
2: This is, I think, probably a mild improvement. But it is nothing earth-shattering. It's a mild improvement because it's a little darker. It's a little less slapstick in places. And, I mean, the problems that it has are at its narrative core. It's, it's not something that an alternate edit can really fix. The fact that there are so many villains. I mean, get rid of Sandman. He's dull. I don't think he works here.
1: I think the effects they have on Sandman are incredible. Oh yeah,
2: they're extraordinary, all of the, the particle stuff, yeah. But I think that Sandman, I, I never buy Thomas Hayden Church's emotion or his sadness. I mean, he just hangs around with a hangdog expression on his face and mutters morosely to himself.
1: But there is no person who could physically look more like mm. Sandman than Thomas Hayden Church.
2: Peter is, is a prick before Venom turns up yeah he's he's arrogant he's not treating the people around him very well okay yes venom is handled about as badly as you could possibly handle venom that he turns peter into a jazz piano playing tap dancing strutting weirdo venom as an idea is incredibly cool but jesus christ how do you look at that and be (laughs) like yeah let's do this i mean this the story goes that i don't know how accurate this is but the story goes that raimi was not a fan of venom and was forced by the producers to put him into the movie, and that his sort of lack of interest resulted in a much less defined villain than had been Mm. there earlier. And if that's the case, I don't know what his problem is, because I I would drop Sandman for Venom in a heartbeat.
1: (laughs) We also get Topher Grace as Eddie Brock, who does a pretty decent job as the character, I think. Yeah,
2: it really hurt his career, this movie, Mm. and he still gets so much flack for it, but it isn't his fault. He is, it's the script's fault. It's the characterization's fault.
3: He's doing the work. He's been stranded with a character who the director didn't want to be there, you know? And I feel like if Raimed cared just a little bit more about Venom being there, they could have done some really interesting things there. He doesn't say, we are
0: Venom.
1: Doesn't use the accurate syntax.
3: The one part that I like with venom in this movie is where he says
0: i like being bad it makes me happy
2: it is really forced in too he just literally drops out of the sky yeah and they never bother to explain anything about him bully Maguire
0: <laughs>
3: yeah just for the
2: meme potential i mean i kind of love it even though it really does break the tone of the whole franchise during those scenes
0: you're trash brock
2: they have shifted the original strutting down the street bit. They have moved it to taking place just after the pumpkin bomb goes off. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, that, it's him walking away, the explosion behind him, cut to black. The music starts and then he's strutting down the street.
1: Still the same music. Yeah.
2: That's brilliant though. It emphasizes a sort of psychotic lack of interest in the people around him, which yeah. works.
3: It works for Venom.
2: Yeah. And it kind of takes, again... It, it takes this scene that is still incredibly silly, but makes it a little bit darker because of the context that it starts.
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: The editor here, Bob Muraski, he was the original editor also, but this is his own cut of the film that is, I think, better than the theatrical cut. But again, for, for as much as they kind of help that sequence, it is really silly as a whole, all of that stuff. Mm. And they can't do anything at all with the fever number because it's tied so closely to the reason that Peter snaps out of it. Yeah.
1: Goes to the church for his whole comic book accurate scene. Hmm. One thing I really, really like about Spider-Man 3 is Christopher Young's music. He composes a really cool theme for Sandman He composes a really badass theme for the symbiote.
3: Terrifying as well. It's almost like a monster theme.
1: Christopher Young's very talented at horror. Yeah. He was the composer for Sinister. He's quite adept at that horror thing. So, in the bits where the black suit is climbing onto Peter, dripping, turning into a claw as it climbs up him.
3: Which they did practically on set. Yeah. With a...
2: The editor's cut does add in two scenes, one for Sandman and one for Venom, that sort of gives a little more character to both of them. There's a mm. scene with Sandman where he basically lurks in a in a sand pit at a public park, turns into a giant sandcastle so he can observe his daughter. Mm. It is kind of sweet, actually, it's probably Sandman's best scene, and I'm bewildered why they would cut it. But the one with Venom is sort of this siren call that Peter is is hearing of the suit in the chest in the closet. And he goes and he looks at it and the suit is breathing. Yeah. Again, they're just little alterations here. I mean, this this ain't the Lord of the Rings extended edition. There's, there's (laughs) nothing like that that they're doing here, but just little quality of life things that they're doing to at least improve it a little bit. I think the MJ Peter thing here is so tiresome. It's in search of drama that it doesn't need. Now they're telling us that she's a bad actress when she was doing great in the second movie. And the chemistry that she has, that Dunst has with Maguire here is almost non-existent. Harry's stuff is far more entertaining. It's James Franco doing his Looney Tunes routine. He has a lot more chemistry with Dunst than Maguire does.
1: It's Franco doing his best Will Defoe at
2: times. Mm. The finale is the best bit. It's a good set piece to end the movie on. And the final scene is unearned, but it's poignant. I think as an ending to the trilogy, it's sort of a sad note to end on.
1: Yeah, it's a grim note to end Mm. things on. Because you
3: get the idea that things will be okay, but there's going to have to be work put in.
2: Yeah. Maguire is done no favours by the script here. To his credit, every time he's asked to do these silly things, he gives it 110%. Yeah. They're striding down the street, the fever dance. I mean, he is not holding back. He is doing everything that is asked of him. It's just that what he's being asked to do is... Foolish. Rosemary Harris and J.K. Simmons, again, very good. It's not a great film, but it's not nearly as bad as everyone tries to make it out to be. I think it's just the come down from Spider-Man 2 was so great that everyone reacted yeah. to it more strongly than they probably should.
1: Following Spider-Man 2, it's it's a hard thing to do. And it, it's like going from
3: Batman Returns to Batman Forever. The Switch is just so... Sudden to a different kind of movie. Mm.
2: Anyways, that's available for streaming on Netflix in Australia, if anybody is interested. And that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching?
3: Okay, so this week I've watched a film called The Taking of Deborah Logan. It is a found footage movie that follows a film crew who are doing a documentary on an elderly woman who's battling Alzheimer's disease agrees to let the film crew document her condition alongside her daughter. But things go poorly, and we find that a demon is oppressing and possessing Deborah, at the same time as she's suffering from Alzheimer's. This handles the very serious nature of Alzheimer's really well. The first half of the film treats it with absolute sincerity, and... The actress who plays Deborah, her name is Jill Larson. She is incredible in this. She is doing so many subtle things, so many brave performance choices, that it's just astonishing to watch. As well as Anne Ramsey, who plays Sarah Logan, Deborah's daughter, she works with Jill so well at creating this tense relationship between the two women where you know that there's history there and they've got a mother and daughter relationship they can joke and laugh with each other but there have been times when they've not seen eye to eye and it's caused rifts and you can see this it's also put together really well in terms of the found footage nature of it and it's horrifying you know to see this person deteriorate And then when it gets to the actual possession aspect of things and the horror movie things, it takes that seriously as well. You get characters making the right choices. One of the camera operators for this documentary, who had already been attacked with a knife by this point, sort of pieces out and leaves and doesn't come back. Which... I respect when that happens in a horror movie. When someone decides, no, this isn't for me, I'm going to excise myself from the situation, going to go hang out in a church maybe for a while.
2: In Scream 2, it's Courtney Cox's cameraman, he leaves. Yeah, Yeah, he just bounces.
1: It's like, I'm seeing some scary shit, peace, I'm going to leave. It's like
2: something about some other reporter or cameraman or something was killed and so he immediately, like, he's out.
1: I know what happened to your lost cameraman.
2: Yeah, and he's like, something like, he was gutted, and Courtney Cox is like, he wasn't gutted, he was just stabbed. And he goes, gutted, stabbed, doesn't matter, he's not in the union anymore.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If, If I was in this situation, I would leave. The horror aspect is really well handled here, you get some gruesome stuff. But the most horrific stuff is watching the tests that have to be done on Deborah... Because her her Alzheimer's is progressing far faster than it should be. And seeing her get a spinal tap, which is where they extract fluid out of the spinal column, is one of the most horrific scenes I've seen in a film. Yeah, it's really well handled, it's done respectfully, and... It's rated right R in
2: Australia, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think so. It's is just... It it? Sort of. It gets close to, yeah. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I watched it with my mom, and she really enjoyed it too. And she thanked me for putting it on after.
1: <laughs> Which is weird, because it's a horror movie.
3: Yeah, she's usually really skittish with horror movies. Yeah, so
1: really enjoyed that. Yeah, so that's what we've seen within the week. All right, boys, are you ready to talk about Spider-Man?
0: Bonesaw is ready.
1: Cage! <laughs>
0: Who am I? You sure you wanna know? If somebody told you I was just your average ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Truth is, it wasn't always like this. There was a time when life was a lot less complicated. Can I take your picture for the school paper? Sure.
1: In this lab, we have 15 genetically enhanced super spiders. There's 14. One's missing.
0: Peter, hey are you alright? I'm fine. Pete, hey, look, you're changing. I know I went do exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Peter, may I introduce my father, Norman Osborne? Great honor to meet you, sir. Harry tells me you're quite the science whiz. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. What the hell was that? Whatever it is, somebody has to stop it. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. Wow. It is my curse. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Do I get to say thank you this time? You're not Superman, you know.
2: That was the trailer for Spider-Man, directed by Sam Raimi. It is a superhero film based on the character created by Stanley and Steve Ditko, and it follows nerdy, spectacle-adorned New York teenager Peter Parker, played by Tobey Maguire. Peter is an orphan, cared for by his elderly Aunt May, played by Rosemary Harris, and Uncle Ben, played by Cliff Robertson and he's on the lowest rung of his school's social ladder, treated with absolute contempt and disdain by his peers, with the exception of his rich best friend, Harry Osborne, played by James Franco, and Mary Jane, played by Kirsten Dunst, the girl next door who Peter has a massive, unrequited love for. However, this regular, if unappealing, existence is one day disrupted when Peter is bitten by a genetically altered spider on a school field trip to a laboratory. Its freakish venom transforms him, leaving him buff with 20-20 vision, increased strength and the ability to shoot webby industrial strength ropes out of his wrists. After a personal tragedy shatters his home life, Peter is driven to use his new powers to fight crime, calling himself Spider-Man and adopting a spiffy suit and mask purpose made for swinging anonymously through New York's glass and steel skyscraper canyons. But the birth of this superhero has been accompanied by the creation of a supervillain. Harry's father, Norman Osborn, played by Willem Dafoe, is a scientist working on a super soldier serum for the US government in his lab. But after an attempt at human testing goes disastrously awry, Norman is driven criminally insane. His personality splits and, taking up the power armour and glider his company was also developing, he unwittingly adopts the new identity of the Green Goblin the hide to Norman's Jekyll, putting both him and Peter on a collision course with each other that will have fatal consequences. So, before we go too deep into this, why don't we each go around and say what we think of Spider-Man in our timed 30-second thoughts. Why don't you start us off, Sean? what do you think of Spider-Man? Are you ready to go? Yep. Three, two, one, go.
3: I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. The Raimi Spider-Man films are important to me. Green Goblin was the first villain I ever loved. I had the action figure of this Green Goblin, and I cried when he died the first time I saw it. (laughs) I full-on sobbed. I turned to my
2: mum and said,
3: is he going to be okay?
2: (laughs) All right. Um, you ready? Yeah. Three, two, one, go.
1: So I really, really dig this film and the rest of the Raimi trilogy. Spider-Man is my favourite Marvel superhero, favourite Marvel character. He's, like, tied with my favourite superhero being Batman. And Tobey just nails the character. Willem Dafoe is amazing as Green Goblin, my favourite Spider-Man villain. And, yeah, this is just some great stuff.
2: Alright, you got me queued up?
1: Yep. Three... Two,
2: one, go. This isn't going to win me any friends, I can already tell. But I think that the Raimi Spider-Man movies are incredibly overrated. I get that they hold a uh, they hold a special place in a lot of people's hearts. They were they were part of that first wave of like really good superhero movies of the 21st century. But I think that this movie is too silly for its own good, and I really don't like Tobey Maguire's performance at the center of this. Uh, but we will get into that. I do want st- to. Start with the incredible production history of this movie. Mm. Buckle up, guys, because this is pretty intense. This was a long time coming. Roger Corman had the rights for a while, but eventually it reverted to Marvel, and they then licensed it out again to Canon Films, which was the the B-movie company owned by the infamous producer cousins Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus. They were the heads of Canon And they misunderstood the concept entirely. They thought, wolfman, spider-man, it's like the wolfman. They thought that it was sort of an unwilling, monstrous transformation. And so a script was written on this misunderstanding. I'm quoting here from Wikipedia. A corporate scientist intentionally subjects ID badge photographer Peter Parker to radioactive bombardment, transforming him into a hairy, suicidal, eight-armed monster. This human tarantula refuses to join the scientists' new master race of mutants, battling a succession of mutations kept in a basement laboratory. Toby Hooper was rumoured to direct this iteration of the film. I want to see that movie. Well, Stanley didn't. Stanley was appalled. <laughs> of course he was. I get... It's not Spider-Man. It's... Ugh. And so he pushed hard for story changes. Multiple drafts went through The Ringer multiple concepts as well including a draft from one of the creative team of Sabrina the Teenage Witch eventually they settled on Doc Ock being the villain and Joseph Zito who had directed Friday the 13th part 4 was attached as director the budget was set at 15 to 20 million dollars that's about 35 to 47 million now uh, no casting was finalized but Tom Cruise was rumored to be being considered for Peter Bob Hoskins as Ock and Lauren Bacall or Catherine Hepburn were being considered as Aunt May. Then, Canon released Superman 4, the Nuclear Man one, and suddenly they lost interest in superhero movies. Hmm, wonder why? <laughs> they gutted the budget of this film. Zito refused to do a version of it that was compromised, and so he left. Albrecht Pion, or Pion, I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, was brought on as the new director. He is described by some as the new Ed Wood, just so you, you know the, the kind of talent they got attached here. But Canon then had a financial meltdown, and Spider-Man was cancelled after $1.5 million had already been spent on the film. Don't feel bad for Albert Pian, though. He got to go make the awful 1990 Captain America movie.
3: Hmm. Which you can find on stand by the way. Anyways, at
2: this point we're in 1989, Canon is in dire straits financially and they're bought by Giancarlo Peretti and renamed Pathé Communicate. Globus decides to stay with Pathé and Golan leaves to run 21st Century Film Corporation, which was also owned by Peretti. And in lieu of a payout for Canon, he keeps a few IP, including Spider Man, and then extends his ownership of the rights with Marvel. Through nineteen ninety two, and he starts to try and get a new version of the project off the ground by pre-selling the TV, home video, and theatrical rights. And James Cameron is brought on board to write and direct. And Cameron prepares a treatment with the intention of doing it as his next project after True Lies. What are you making that face for, Harley?
1: Because uh, I know this. I know this script.
2: It's darker. It's more adult. It features Electro and Sandman as the villains, and. It also features heavy profanity and Peter and MJ having sex atop the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> it's budgeted at a $50 million budget, which is $93 million now. And there is a horrifying rumour that Arnold Schwarzenegger will be cast as Doc Ock. Now, pay attention, because this is where it gets complicated.
3: <laughs> this is where it gets complicated.
2: Yes. It all turns into a phenomenal corporate shit show. So, when he was trying to get things off the ground, Golan sold the theatrical rights to Coralco. And when Coralco drew up their contract with Cameron, they basically used his Terminator 2 contract as a template. And without anyone really noticing, this gave him the power to choose who got on-screen credit. And he decides that he isn't going to credit Golan. But Golan has his own contractual guarantee of getting a credit with Coralco. So Coralco's kind of screwed. Now, if I'm James Cameron at this point, I'm just saying screw it. Just give him a producer credit. But apparently that's not how it went down. And Golan took <laughs> legal action. Coralco says, uh, screw it. And so they sued both companies that Golan had sold the home video and TV rights to to get them back. So those companies then countersued Coralco. 20th Century Fox, which up to this point had been totally uninvolved, wandered into the mess to insist that Cameron actually had an exclusive contract with them and so was not allowed to write and direct a Spider-Man movie. Jesus. <laughs> the whole thing imploded in 1996. Coralco and 21st Century Film Corporation both went bankrupt about the same time as Marvel Comics did. Side note. You remember Peretti, the guy that bought Canon Films and turned it into Pathé? Mm -hmm. In the meantime, he has merged Pathé, which again was formerly Canon, with MGM and lived like a king in a legendarily bizarre run that badly damaged the studio. His ownership collapsed amid lawsuits and bankruptcy, and he was later convicted of misuse of corporate funds and securities fraud. (laughs) That has nothing to do with Spider-Man, it's just a fun little footnote in this bizarre story.
3: Can we get the movie about this? Please.
2: (laughs) Well, I've always thought that a a succession-style business drama set in a movie studio would be really cool. Hmm. Anyways, in the wake of all of that, MGM got 21st Century's film assets, which included all of the Spider-Man material. They got this in a quick claim. MGM also sued 21st Century and Marvel, alleging some sort of fraud in the original deal where Marvel licensed the rights to canon, but that remains a little unclear what they were talking about there. Marvel emerged from bankruptcy in 1998. They were the only one that did. And the courts determined that Golan's Spider-Man rights had expired. And so they were back with Marvel again. And Marvel then decides to license them out again to Columbia Pictures in 1999. At the same time, they offered Columbia Pictures and Sony the right to license every one of the characters they still ha- that Marvel still had the rights to for $25 million, but Sony declined. Whoops! MGM still insists that they had the Spider-Man rights, and so they took issue with Columbia Pictures buying the Spider-Man rights, and they start causing some problems there. Now, however improbably, this is the point where we have to flash back 40 years and start talking about James Bond.
3: <laughs> All right. <laughs>
2: So the Ian Fleming, James Bond novel Thunderball has an interesting background. It was based on a story treatment for an initial attempt to make a James Bond film in the late 1950s. This original film attempt was going to be an original story that was not based on a pre-existing novel. But when that fell through, Fleming decided, okay, I'll just write a book based on this story treatment and not credit the screenwriters. Mm. Uh, So the screenwriters... Mainly Kevin McClory, he's the guy that you should really be paying attention to here. He sued, and the settlement gave McClory the rights to the script, but not the book. So, in 1983, McClory made a rival James Bond film, which brought Sean Connery back, Never Say Never Again. It is an adaptation of the Thunderball script. I know about that, yeah. He also tried to readapt Thunderball once more in the 1990s with Timothy Dalton, after they had moved on from Dalton. But Sony, who also had the Casino Royale rights, that's why Casino Royale was not adapted until 2006, is that Sony held the rights for it from a separate adaptation they had done more as like a comedy before the Sean Connery movie started.
3: It was not Eon, it was, yeah, they did frame it as more of a comedy story, yeah.
2: But they buy McClory's rights to Thunderball the script in 1997 and they announced their intention to start a rival James Bond film series. MGM sues. Yeah, rightfully I'd say. And so here we end up in a stalemate. Now, we're back in 1999. MGM is insisting that they're going to make a Spider-Man movie and Sony says they have the rights to Spider-Man and Sony is insisting they're going to make a James Bond movie, and MGM is insisting they have the rights to James Bond. So, they make a hostage exchange. MGM (laughs) drops Spidey for the Bond rights, Columbia drops Bond for Spidey, and the movie we are talking about today finally gets underway. (laughs) This is the deal that also allows the Daniel Craig Casino Royale to be made in 2006.
3: And they hand over the reins of this film to the guy who made Darkman.
2: Not immediately. David Fincher was considered to direct the movie. He...
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. David Fincher for Spider-Man, oh. for Batman? Sure. For Spider-Man? Fuck
3: yes. My god, that would be brilliant. Can you imagine? That would I would have to be him versus Carnage, right?
2: He was totally uninterested in doing an origin story. He wanted to instead adapt The Night Gwen Stacy died.
1: Yes! From David Fincher?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Brilliant. (laughs) According to Screen Rant, Tim Burton, Jan DeBont, who directed Speed, Roland Emmerich, Ang Lee, Tony Scott, and M. Night Shyamalan were all considered as well.
3: I can picture Spider-Man movies from all of those people. Mm.
2: But they finally settle in on Raimi, who decides to refocus on the Green Goblin. David Kep is hired to write, well, rewrite the Cameron material. It's still, this movie is still based on the foundation of the James Cameron treatment from the 90s. And the script is later then polished by Alvin Sargent, who would go on to write two and be the co-writer on three, and Scott Rosenberg, who is the co-writer on High Fidelity, The New Jumanji's Venom, and Kangaroo Jack. Cameron's organic webs remained. Cameron was the one that started the whole organic web thing, and it, Stayed through right to the very final iteration of this. And his take there is still somewhat present. When time came that Columbia had to submit the names of the writers to the Writers Guild for accreditation, they submitted the names of James Cameron, Alvin Sargent, Scott Rosenberg, and David Kep. And Cameron, Sargent, and Rosenberg all voluntarily ceded credit to Kep, whose work <laughs> was ultimately the most of what was in the final version. Leonardo DiCaprio, Freddie Prinze Jr. and Heath Ledger were considered for the role of Peter. James Franco originally screen-tested for Peter, and there was also some rumours going around that Colin Farrell might be being considered. But Tobey Maguire was cast off of his performance in The Cider House Rules. Meanwhile, John Malkovich and Nicolas Cage both turned down the role of the Green Goblin. Jim Carrey and Jason Isaacs were also rumoured to be being considered.
3: Can you imagine Isaacs, though? Mm. That would
1: be phenomenal. That would be a straight-up sinister approach.
2: There were a few significant production problems during filming, though. The trouble did not end once cameras started rolling. On March the sixth, two 2001, construction worker Tim Holcomb was killed in an accident while building the sets for the film. A construction crane crashed into the construction basket that he was in at the time and killed him. Sony was later fined for a safety violation that uh, contributed to that. In April, four of the Spider-Man costumes were stolen. Mm -hmm. Sony offered a $25,000 reward for their return. They were not returned, however. They were instead recovered a year and a half later, and a former studio guard was arrested along with one other. Incredible side note, while they were searching the guy's house, they found a Batman costume that had been missing since 1996. Brilliant. (laughs) Brilliant. brilliant the movie underwent minor reshoots after 911 and the twin towers were there's some com- conflicting information on this as to whether the twin towers were digitally erased or not it it certainly seems like the most of the evidence suggests that they were but there was also allegedly a feud between Toby Maguire and James Franco i'm quoting from screen rant here again if toby maguire's Representatives are listening. This is Screen Rant, not Lawson, who is saying this. Quote, The feud came about after James Franco made fun of Tobey Maguire's frog-like features.
1: I'm not going to make any comments.
2: Osborne House is Greystone Mansion. That's where it was filmed. It has had many other uses, including as Oliver Queen's mansion in the first two seasons of Arrow. And Hugh Jackman was originally going to appear in the film as a brief walk-on cameo as Wolverine, but they couldn't locate the suit.
3: Put him in a jacket!
1: He wears his jacket for most of the time, I mean...
3: Does he have to walk past in the leather number?
2: It was finally released on the 3rd of May, 2002. It was distributed by Sony Pictures in America, and its widest release there was on 3,615 theatres. Other movies got out of the way for Spider-Man. Very few movies opened that week. It opened number one against the movies Deuces Wild and Hollywood Ending. (laughs) The only major competition that week was this podcast mascot, The Scorpion King.
3: Motherfucker. Every It's like everything somehow just comes back to The Scorpion King and I don't understand why.
2: The Scorpion King had premiered the week before and maintained the number two slot. Lucky. Lucky. Spider-Man was the third highest grossing movie of 2002, behind two movies we've already talked about, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets and The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. It earned $825 million on a $139 million budget. It was released in Australia a month after its US release on June the 6th. Its widest release here was 470 theatres and... It made $17.2 million of its worldwide gross hit. It was a critical success. It has a 90% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The critics' consensus reads, not only does Spider-Man provide a good dose of web-swinging fun, it also has a heart, thanks to the combined charms of director Sam Raimi and star Tobey Maguire. It was also a hit with audiences. It has a cinema score of A minus. It was nominated and won quite a few different awards, It was nominated for the Best Visual Effects and Best Sound Oscars. It was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Visual Effects. The Saturn Awards, it won Best Music and was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, Best Actor, Toby Maguire, Best Actress, Kirsten Dunst, Best Director and Best Special Effects. It was nominated for two Grammys for Original uh, Score Soundtrack Album for Danny Elfman and for the song Hero as uh, Best Song Written for a Motion Picture Television or Other Visual Medium was nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Kids' Choice Awards, it was nominated for Favourite Movie, Favourite Movie Actor for Kirsten Dunst, and Favourite Male Butt Kicker for Tobey Maguire. MTV Mo- Movie Awards was nominated. Well, it, it won, I should say. Best Female Performance for Kirsten Dunst, and Best Kiss for The Upside Down Kiss, nominated also for Best Movie, Best Male Performance by Tobey Maguire, and Best Villain for Willem Dafoe. Uh, and I think that that's pretty much it. Oh no, there were Teen Choice Awards. We like the Teen Choice Awards. <laughs> it was nominated for Choice Film, Drama, Action, Adventure. Uh, no, it won that. Tobey Maguire won Choice Actor for Drama, Action, Adventure. Uh, they won Choice Lip Lock for, again, for The Upside Down Kiss. And Kirsten Dunst was nominated for Choice Actress in a Drama, Action, Adventure. And bewilderingly, Kirsten, Dun- Kirsten Dunst and Toby Maguire were nominated for best chemistry. <laughs> it also got nominated for the world at the World Stunt Awards for best fight for the fight at the very end between Goblin and Spider-Man. So, anyways, that is the long, convoluted history of Spider-Man coming to the screen. I was quite happy when I found out the depth to which that went, mm. uh, and all of the bizarre side turns it made. is sort of is, is the poster child for why we started to do these production history segments.
1: Mm. But from all of that, it is still surprising how well it turned out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People were fighting over this movie
3: like fucking dogs with a well-cooked steak.
2: Mm. So I do want to start out with the tone, uh, because I do think that this is a fairly silly movie.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course.
2: At times, it feels a little bit Power Rangers to me.
1: The backflips will do it.
3: Yeah, it's the flipping.
2: It's the one-liners too. It's the it's the cheesy wooden dialogue at, at times.
1: You're the one who's out, Gobby, out of your mind.
2: Hmm. Yeah, stuff like that.
1: That
3: line is particularly egregious.
1: Other lines, you can be like,
3: yeah, well, you know. But that line, I don't know, bud. Maybe want to run that by me again.
2: And I think, like, I don't know, if we've ever mentioned this on the podcast, but we recorded a first episode of this series. That ended up not recording properly And we lost it uh, It was on Darkman Sam Raimi's previous superhero movies And I think Darkman had a similar vibe Frankly It mm. was it was also a weird mixture of silly And Raimi's sort of pulp influences
1: Oh, Darkman was a lot darker But yeah, I would agree That sort of imbalance was present Take it no. Take it Suck <laughs> the fucking elephant
2: all right, I like Sam Raimi as a director. and he's, Me too. I love his stuff. And there is stuff that he's done that I've liked, but I'm not sure that there's anything that he has done that I personally have really loved because I feel like he's always fighting between a darker, more mature filmmaking instinct mm. and his desire to in- insert Three Stooges slapstick into so much of what he does. And for me, that's never gelled very well. My favourite Evil Dead movie is the only one he didn't direct.
3: (laughs) See, that's where you and I differ, Lawson, because my favourite Evil Dead movie is Army of Darkness.
2: Oh yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me that you would be down for some Three Stooges slapstick. It's because it's just so...
3: It's got a sense of fun to it, you know? This movie, as ridiculous as some of the parts are, and I think this is why I liked past nine more than i like the seventh one it's just because it is so off the wall sort of it's not self-conscious it doesn't really care if people make fun of it it just does it itself and i i respect that so much in a filmmaker which is why sam raimi is one of my favorite filmmakers it's he's up there with burton for me in terms of just just doing what he wants to do and not giving a shit what anyone else thinks about it. Mm. Sure, but
2: I I think you brought up Burton, and I think that Burton's style, like Batman Returns, I really love Batman Returns, and that is like peak Burton weirdness inserted into a It's also super dark. Yeah, but like Burton marries the tones that he's dealing with. He marries the Batman with his Mm. own weird absurdities, better than Sam Raimi does, I think, because Sam Raimi... like Burton turns Gotham into a gothic fantasy land. Yeah. And Raimi is still trying to make him he's trying to make a movie that is set in the real world but is populated by cartoon characters. Yeah. yeah. The,
1: the way I look at it is when Burton makes a film, be it Batman Returns, my favorite Batman film, or something like Sleepy Hollow, he is doing sort of gothic German expressionist stuff. There's a set formula that Burton can refer to, whereas Raimi is just making whatever his crazy noodle wants to make.
2: What I'm, what I'm getting at though, is the the marriage of the comedy and the silliness with the serious. Yes, elements so that's of what his I mean. Plot. It's like, but that's not German expressionist.
1: No, but what I'm saying is stylistically speaking, is something to go off of. Right, and then he can add his little things into it. But what Raimi's doing is coming up with a tone pretty much his own.
2: It's worth noting too that we can get a little bit forgetful of this given the incredible amount of superhero movies we get now but this was really the second superhero movie of the modern era x-men had come out 2 years earlier and it had tried a more serious straightforward like everyone was wearing leather instead of spandex <laughs> like that was that that was the first shot at something like that but this was only the second one of those movies it was it was what before this it was x-men and then the one before that was um batman and robin yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it is still in a mode... It, it's still very early modern superhero cinema, and I think that it's kind of trying to figure out how far audiences are willing to go. Yeah, where's the line? How comic booky can we get? And, and you think of it now, and we're all sitting here, and we've had a, a decade-long interconnected comic book story over multiple yeah. franchises with the MCU. There's a talking raccoon and a giant tree and and it seems a little you know weird we to us we take it for
1: granted in the modern we, we, day yeah we
2: we take it for granted that audiences would would just accept yeah. that kind of fantastical thing but yeah
1: there's, there's people who have grown up with the MCU as it is yeah and they don't understand what it was like to live in a world where they couldn't wear the costumes all the time mm. where where they had to find a way to make it grounded
2: yeah and i do think that that is somewhat of my problem with Spider-Man is that it feels a little bit tentative. It feels like it doesn't know how much it can get away with with the audience, and so it plays it a bit safe, and that that causes some extra problems with the tone. It's one of the reasons why I think Spider-Man 2 is a much more confident movie, is because Raimi has figured out his audience, basically. He's figured out how far he can push things.
1: In 2, he nails the tone of what a superhero movie can be. Serious, but also having moments of real silliness, the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence, for example.
2: And and it has the benefit of not being an origin story. Yeah. Which I think is sort of the albatross around a lot of superhero franchises. Next is that, I mean, how many of us ever cite the origin movie as being our favourite movie in a superhero franchise? Like, it's sort of the one that you... Like, Iron Man is, like, the one I can think of?
3: Yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm of the opinion that the second Spider-Man movie in each trilogy is always the best.
2: But like Spider-Man 2, Batman Returns, X2, Dark Knight, yeah. Captain America Winter Soldier. Like it, It's like, more often than not, the origin story is is kind of something that we need to get out of the way so we can really actually explore these characters in this universe. Yeah, Absolutely. and it
3: doesn't mean that these, mo- these first origin story movies aren't good. It just means that you can take the character in so many more interesting
2: directions in a sequel. Uh, and
1: plus, when you have an origin story, you've got to get through the origin story.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's like a pilot for a TV show. Once we get all the setup out of the way, we can start doing things with the characters that we yeah that we want to do. I do think that like that's one of the smartest calls that the MCU made when they introduced Spider-Man in was to not even bother redoing the origin story because we know it. And so not even, like, they haven't even said how it happened, have they? No. Yeah. How Uncle Ben died.
1: They've said, bitten by a radioactive spider, and they've implied the loss of an Uncle Ben figure. Yeah. I think, personally, they should mention Uncle Ben at least once.
2: We didn't need to see that old man die in the gutter again. No. No. He was fast becoming the Thomas and Martha Wayne of the Marvel Universe. (laughs) Yeah, Like, all that he was missing was a pearl necklace that we could have slow-motion shots of as it hits the ground. Yeah.
1: But let's start talking about this movie's sort of story on some of the characters. Uh, you've mentioned that you're not too hot on Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Correct. Talk a little bit about that.
2: I find him to be a really unappealing character. I I very rarely am having fun because of what he's doing. He is very sad and very angsty and very miserable for a lot of the time, and the way that he just sort of mumbles all of his lines. I find... I mean, Tom Holland is the perfect Spider-Man. I don't think that's a controversial opinion. I
3: don't think it's controversial.
2: But I also think that Andrew Garfield... Perhaps he did not... I mean, it's difficult to buy Andrew Garfield as sort of a nerd, uh, or a social outcast. He's too conventionally attractive, you know? He was a hell of a lot more entertaining to watch for me. I think that Tobey Maguire's... I just, I, and this goes to the sort of other problem that I have with it is Sam Raimi's insistence on making Spider-Man a sort of put upon tragic hero for so much of this trilogy that he doesn't have the energy or the pep that I want from a Spider-Man. I'm not saying that Spider-Man can't have problems. Like that's one of the cool things about Spider-Man is that he's a regular teenager and he has teenager problems, but Maguire always seems like he's dragging his feet, that He's really having a bad time, and that doesn't appeal to me as a Spider-Man viewer.
3: Doesn't help that when there are scenes in the school and when they're being high school students, everyone's in their mid-twenties.
1: I would tend to agree. I think Maguire is more effective as Peter Parker than he is as Spider-Man. I don't think the quips come out naturally, as much as they do with someone like Andrew Garfield or Tom Holland, or even some of the people who've done the animated voice acting for Spider-Man. And I think a lot of what Maguire is doing in comparison to the other Spider-Man actors is, it's like a sort of Silver Age sort of thing.
2: It's a lot more muted.
1: It's more muted, it's more, uh, he's an image, more than he is a sort of psychologically interesting character. And that's really sort of, I think, what the tone is going for. The psychologically interesting characters we get in this this trilogy are the villains. And that's... Spider-Man is the Marvel character with the best villains.
3: Yeah, I can go with that. Think about it. If you look at Batman, the rogues gallery. Yeah. You know, you've got Joker, Riddler, Catwoman, Bane. For Spider-Man, you can list them off too. Basically, every member of the Sinister Six.
1: Dark Ark, Green Goblin,
3: Venom, Carnage, Craven the Hunter.
2: You're probably right that he has the, the most in just volume, but I do think that the absolute best MC uh, Marvel Universe villain is Magneto. Oh, yeah, of course.
1: The X-Men has a huge amount of interesting villains, yeah. but for a single hero, for a soul hero, he has the best rogues gallery of Have Marvel. you noticed
3: that? With Spider-Man villains, it's always a scientific experiment going wrong. Hmm.
1: Well, because Spider-Man himself is an accidental superhero. He was bitten by the spider because he was there. He is an accidental positive result of a science experiment, whereas people like the Green Goblin, the Lizard, these are science experiments gone Awry.
3: He's sort of like Crash Bandicoot in that sense that... What? He was sort of this accidental, heroic character created by a mad scientist. Sure.
2: That is, that is a one-to-one parallel, Sean. You are absolutely correct. That is, when I think of Spider-Man, I think, you know what Spider-Man is? He is exactly like Crash Bandicoot.
1: When I think Spider-Man, I also think of Sony PlayStation's mascot, Crash Bandicoot.
2: Well, they... They did use the Spider-Man font for the PS3.
1: They did. They did. And there's also
3: the fact that if if I worked at Oscorp, I would just be waiting for me myself to get into one of these things so I can, like, shoot paper out of my eyes or some well, shit. Well, yeah, but
2: you'd walk in and, like, Willem Dafoe is the guy doing the job interview, and you're like, oh, he will absolutely kill one of us at one point. I mean, just look at him. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they didn't need a mask. They didn't just have... Willem Defoe's face. There's a perfect Green Goblin mask right there. Yeah. I'm not even convinced he's acting. I think this might have just been something he was doing and Sam Raimi put a camera on and filmed <laughs> it.
1: My favourite Spider-Man villain isn't Venom, isn't Lizard or Electro. It's the Green Goblin, right?
3: He's, he's Spider-Man's Joker.
1: Because the Green Goblin is the villain who hurt him the most. He's the one who killed Gwen Stacy in the comics. He's the one who will always, always be the villain who won.
2: Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't he like a lot more sociopathic in the comics than he is in this film? Oh
1: yeah! Oh yeah! Like, the comics he- Norman, before he becomes the Goblin, is a bastard man.
3: He's a maniac.
1: And the Green Goblin is sort of the- throwing off the airs of society becoming who he really is. Yes, the serum does send him mad, but
3: there's nothing there that wasn't already there.
1: He's a bad guy before that, but he just becomes worse as the Goblin. Whereas in this film, Willem Dafoe is playing this Jekyll and Hyde thing, like you mentioned um in the overview. He's Before he takes the performance enhancer, he seems like a genuinely friendly guy.
3: To everyone but his son, but,
1: you know. Well, he seems cold and a bit distant, but he still seems genuinely affable.
2: He's hardly a an evil person.
1: No. no, he's, you know, he's probably more distant than he should be.
2: Yeah. A bit emotionally reserved. Yeah. In a way that sort of like maybe if Mrs. Osborne was still around would be tempered a little bit and give yeah. Harry more of a warm home life. But he, he seems like a guy who's sort of unequipped for fatherhood.
1: Yeah. yeah. He's handling it alone.
3: We get that part where, after the Thanksgiving thing, after the finger-licking good thing from Norman, (laughs) which is just the most threatening, and I think he's hitting on Aunt May?
2: I don't think he's- I think- I I read that as threatening. Oh. Like, he looks furious, to be told off.
3: But- but when he's talking to Harry, he- he mentions that Harry's mother basically went after the
0: money. What are you doing? I planned this whole thing so you can meet MJ and now you have to leave? I gotta go. <laughs> this girl is important to me. Harry, please, look at her. You think a woman like that's sniffing around because she likes your personality? What are you saying? Your mother was beautiful, too. They're all beautiful. Until they're snarling after your trust fund like a pack of ravening wolves. You're wrong about her, Dad. A word to the not-so-wise about your little girlfriend. Do what you need to with her, then broom her fast.
2: Well, this is his interpretation of events. And this is the Goblin's interpretation of events, so who knows.
3: It's so interesting to find the places where Norman ends and the Goblin begins, because the Goblin says the things that Norman doesn't want to. And whenever you're seeing, after the transformation of course, whenever you're seeing a scared upset, fearful person, you're seeing Norman. Mm. Every time he's trying to have a genuine connection with someone, that's Norman. Every time you're seeing, hearing a flat affect, sort of a shrieking maniac, angry, vindictive, fighting, that's the Goblin.
2: And Willem Dafoe is such a good casting choice. It's a strange casting choice because uh, you got to think, this is 2002. He was really an independent actor at that point. Yeah. He wasn't, you know, known for doing big blockbusters. Uh, and he is certainly, I mean, he is an unusual figure. He is like if Nicolas Cage and Al Pacino had a baby. Yes. <laughs> that There is a lot of that there, except unlike the two of them, he is still capable of modulating his performance instead of going full howling crazy all of the time. Yeah. But... He he is such an unusual... He's not a guy that you would expect to see in Spider-Man at this time. No, at this point, yeah. And he is the only one in the cast, I think, that is able to dance to Raimi's tune. I I think he is the only one, even more than Raimi himself, who is actually able to marry the two tones that Raimi is trying to marry. I think Raimi is unsuccessful at it, but I think Willem Dafoe's performance, he actually has figured out the line to walk. And I mean... The
3: performance of the go- of Norman Osborn slash the Green Goblin inspired so much of the tone of this film, sort of the mirror scene where he's sort of playing off of himself, mm. and he's got this weird Jekyll and Hyde conversation going. It's
1: kind of like a one shot that he's having with, having with himself.
0: I don't understand. Did you think it was coincidence? so many good things all happening for you all for you Norman what do you want? to say what you want to do what you can't to remove those in your way the board members you killed them we killed them we remember your little accident in the laboratory the performance enhancers bingo me your greatest creation
3: apparently danny elfman saw that scene and was like i fucking know what i have
2: to do but it's like it's that elastic face that he's got yes like the creepy smile and, but more than that, like, beh- the stuff behind the eyes, the, the stuff that he does with his mouth and his forehead, like, he is an actor who is incredibly good at telling us about the character through his facial expressions. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And his physicality in general, because the Green Goblin, when you look at certain supervillains, you can see there's a specific silhouette they have to have. The Green Goblin on the glider sort of crouched and hunched, and Defoe just nails the physicality. When he jumps out of the testing chamber and he stands there, like sort of hissing and shit like a goblin, that's the silhouette of the Green Goblin. Then there's also the bits where he's incredibly still, just standing straight up, perfect posture on the glider as it creeps forward towards Aunt May.
2: Yeah, And a lot of that is Defoe. He is in the suit a lot of the times, even though it could have been a stuntman, he wanted to be in the suit. Yeah. And you're seeing the dissipation and the weakening of Norman. Uh, Every time we
3: see Norman after the thing, as the goblin is getting stronger, he's getting weaker. The energy is just being ripped from Norman and being given to the goblin.
1: It's like the scene when when Norman's found out that it's Peter who's Spider-Man. Because of the cut on Peter's arm, the Goblin is essentially bullying him and saying, His heart, Osborn. We attack his heart. And the voice that the foe has for the Goblin, he straddles that line between going too far and not going far enough, you know?
3: One of the great scenes with Goblin in this is the little chat that he has with Spider-Man where he says...
0: I chose my path, you chose the way of the hero. And they found you amusing for a while. The people of this city? But the one thing they love more than a hero... Is to see a hero fail, fall, die trying. In spite of everything you've done for them, eventually they will hate you. Why bother? Because it's right. Here's the real truth. There are eight million people in this city. And those teeming masses exist for the sole purpose of lifting the few exceptional people onto their shoulders. You, me, we're exceptional.
3: Like, that's Raimi saying something about superhero media. He's commenting on it. He's using the cliche, mentioning it, and it works.
2: I do think it's a bit weak that his whole plan in the whole movie is to get Spider-Man to join him for no apparent reason.
3: Yeah. Because he's seeing another person who can, like, do the shit he can do.
1: The thing is, with the Green Goblin, he's rarely a villain with a goal in in comics and media. The Green Goblin's sole purpose is to, one, either hurt Spider-Man as much as he possibly can, or, two, hurt as many people as he possibly can.
3: Like, Green Goblin's energy is fuck around and find out.
1: Pretty much, and... The goal of the Green Goblin, after he finds out that he's Peter, is, how can I hurt him? How can I punish him for being?
3: And I think part of that is coming from the fact that Norman sees Peter as the son he wanted Harry to be. And the Goblin takes that and twists it in a very interesting way.
1: The funniest thing, too, is to see when Norman's talking to Peter and Harry's in the background.
3: The you wanna make it on your own Steam. I respect that. And and Harry's just like, Why doesn't my dad fucking love me?
1: And at the end of the movie, when the goblin's trying to sort of fake it to fake being Norman to Spider-Man, he's saying shit like, I treated you like a son, and I'm just sitting here just going, When?
3: You've met him no, like three did times you treat him like a son <laughs> You barely know the guy.
1: It's like, you met him at the beginning of the movie at the field trip. You spoke to him at the graduation.
2: Well, how much time is supposed to have passed throughout this movie from beginning to end?
1: I think a decent amount. Like three months? Two, four months?
2: Seems longer than that to me. I mean, maybe there's stuff off screen that we haven't seen.
1: There's probably a decent amount of time, but one of the most perfect castings in this film is...
3: J.K. Simmons.
1: As J. Jonah James. He's
3: just perfect. Mm.
1: It doesn't get more pitch perfect than that.
3: He's the best casting in a superhero movie ever. He is toe tip J. Jonah Jameson.
2: And it's like a career breakthrough for him, too. Like, he was a TV actor up to that point. It was like, it's the, the guy who has the recurring role on Law and Order as the psychiatrist. I mean, that was what he was known for. I mean, like, I read reviews for this movie in preparation for this podcast, and multiple reviews were like, J.K. Simmons, Dr. Emil from Law and Order. Like, mm. it was... <laughs> It was, he didn't have a very high profile, but it was perfect, perfect casting.
3: This gave him his career, even though, in my opinion, it was gonna happen either way, because J.K. Simmons is the best. And everything about the character, how there were moments where it seems like he's taking Peter under his wing. Like, the part with, hey, he was trying to save those people. That's slander. No, it's not slander. I resent that. In print it's libel.
2: But I do like also that when um is it in this movie or the next is it
1: It's this one. The goblin bust through, threatens him He doesn't and tell then He no. then then J- Jameson defaults to saying, I don't know him, I don't know the photographer his photos come in the mail. Mm-hmm. And that shows you, I think, more than anything else, the quality of character J. Jonah Jameson has. He's not movies. going
3: to give up a source.
1: It's not just that The first thing he does isn't beg for his life. It's to answer the question with a lie. (laughs) (laughs) To protect not only somebody, but also the source of his photos.
3: At no point does he beg for his life. Mm.
1: Like, some of my favorite bits in these movies are the J. Jonah Jameson rants. Yeah. My favorite one is in Spider-Man 2. What do you know about high society?
3: Oh, uh, well, I... Nah, don't answer that. My society photographer got hit in the head by a polo ball. You're all I got. Big party
1: for an American hero. My son, the astronaut.
0: But could you pay me in advance? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? Pay for what, standing there? The planetarium, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. There's the door.
2: It's interesting that we didn't really connect those dots, did we, that when he turned up at the end of Far From Home, that that was something that the MCU was maybe going to continue, the wrapping in of these previously cast actors.
3: The moment I found out J.K. Simmons was at the end of Far From Home, I'm like, multiverse is happening, boys! I want J.K.
1: Simmons to be the universal constant between all three Spider-Men. Like, it's J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson in each universe. And fundamentally, he is the same.
2: But Alfred Molina coming in as um, Doc Ock again. Jamie Foxx coming in as Electro from the Amazing Spider-Man duology again.
1: Rumors of Visa fans back as the Lizard.
2: Rumors of
1: Willem Dafoe.
2: Well, rumors, just incredibly persistent rumors of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield appearing in some capacity. Rumors that have been shot down, but I kind of don't believe them. No, no, I don't believe them either because...
1: There, there, there is simply too much evidence to believe their lies.
3: If the rumours aren't true that this is a Spider-Verse kind of story, then they should put out a trailer sort of dispelling Look, the Look, I think
1: the first trailer will be an attempt to dispel it. Hmm. But but the trailer will be a lie!
2: They're bringing Doctor Strange in, and he's the, the universe-shifting guy.
1: Alfred Molina has confirmed that he's back
2: as the same character, yeah.
1: Jamie Foxx is back as L- Electro. It's like the running theory
3: is among entertainment journalists is that the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer will drop when Loki is done. When Loki is over and Loki is talking a lot about how Nexus events, which is where someone steps out of the timeline, create The possibility of the multiverse, and and we've got, we seem to be getting multiversal versions of Loki. So the wild implication there is, and as well as the the multiverse of madness title and Quantum Mania, basically is screaming at the top of its lungs. Tom Holland is lying to you. He has finally learnt to keep his mouth shut.
2: That or they're lying to Tom Holland. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Okay, so this is my pitch. This is what I think that they're doing. I think that they're building up another huge decade, decade and a bit long story that's going to culminate in the 25th anniversary of the MCU. Yeah. Where they will bring back everybody. Robert Downey Jr. will be back. Chris Evans will be back. They bring back everyone for some huge, like, two or three part.
3: Everyone except for Edward Norton
2: and... Multiverse,
3: baby! Bring them back too! War Machine from
2: the first movie? But, like, that—that—that they'll build up to some huge thing and they'll use this... They'll, they'll use it as a way to get the X-Men in and they'll use it as, like, this multiverse thing. I feel like they're building up to something huge so that they can do some massive celebration of the franchise at the end of it. There's a comics
3: run... From back in the eighties, called Secret Wars, where a a being called the Beyonder, this multiversal, exceptionally powerful being. That's not the
2: one that's becoming a Disney Plus show, no. is it? That's Armor Wars. That's
3: Secret in, and that's Secret Invasion and Armor
2: Wars. All right, yes.
3: Yeah, and the Beyonder basically rips characters out of the off from off of Earth and just plops them into one location. He's got villains, and he's got heroes there. X-Men characters. This is the time we are introduced to the symbiote. And Galactus is there. The Fantastic Four are there.
1: It's basically a giant shit show where the Beyond is like, these are all my toys. I'm going to smash them together, see what happens.
3: It's a whole thing, and it seems to be that it's either this or Annihilus, that they're sort of edging towards
1: a convergence yeah sort of thing
3: because they're bringing in the fantastic four
2: i do have a quote here from alfred molina i don't know if he was supposed to reveal this much in this interview with variety <laughs> probably not <laughs> he says that the doc Ock story will pick up from the very ending of spider-man 2 him in the river and he says that he's going to be digitally de-aged like Samuel l jackson was in captain marvel
1: mm-hmm. which is very interesting because he didn't end that movie
3: insane. So something would have to happen where the chip gets reattached. Is he the... even going to be a villain, though? That, that is the question.
1: Yeah, but um, back to this Spider-Man movie, the moment I see the Green Goblin take someone to a bridge, mm-hmm. my alarm bells start ringing. Because the, the Queens were bridge. They were definitely trying to evoke... The death of Gwen Stacy there. That is absolutely what they were trying to do. Let
3: die the woman you love or suffer the little children.
2: I really don't like the Green Goblin's costume. I think that's the most Power Rangers of all of the, the stuff in this movie. I like it. I think it needed more purple on it. Well, I don't know if you saw this, but a couple of years ago they put out footage of tests of an animatronic mask.
1: Oh, yeah. Creepy as hell, but so, so accurate.
3: Yeah, it looks fucked up. But how how do you tie that into it being developed as yeah exactly
2: as a military weapon? <laughs> well, how do you put this as bit? Be- I mean, I get the power armor, but the mask in the shape of a screaming goblin.
1: <laughs> the mask was one of his own collection of masks, because in the scene where we're introduced to the glider and the and the suit, there's some sort of like like nodes on the guy's head as he's gliding it, as he's using it.
3: It's to control it.
1: Yeah, it's connected to the synapses, and he just added that shit to the mask he already owned. So,
3: those army guy, that army general, who came in and was, you know, how Osborne was doing those, that contract with the military.
2: But he's like his predecessor's the one that, um, that did it, which, if you think about it, means that Bill Clinton's administration greenlit the Green Goblin Glider.
3: Yeah. And I'm just looking at that and I'm thinking, take the glider, the glider works. It's better than that shit that Quest had, which is this bulky monstrosity that looks like Elon Musk's wet dream. It's like, come on, just mix and match, why don't you? The serum doesn't work, but the glider does. The glider does? I'm I'm sure, I'm sure Oscorp has a bunch of other stuff that you can use other than a serum. What's a little bit of insanity in Rats, huh?
1: This is another one of those movies, another one of those franchises with insane meme potential. It's honestly crazy how people have reclaimed these sorts of films and just went to town. Hmm. For example, the Do You Know How Much I've Sacrificed?
2: I'm something of a scientist myself. saw, all of saw, basically.
1: Hey, Brick Joe! You're going nowhere! I got you for three minutes! Three minutes of beat time! Ah! I had to beat an old lady with a stick to get these
3: cranberries. (laughs) He dresses like a spider, he looks like a bug. We We should all just give give him him one big big hug. hug. Look Look out, out. woo! Here comes the The (laughs) Spider-Man.
1: The whole Flash Thompson of it all, it's like... Wouldn't want to fight me neither. Yeah. The fact
3: that Chad Kroger sings Hero, (laughs) I mean, come on. It's like like this movie was designed by people who are nostalgic about the 2000s. Mm.
1: It's like, it is so 2000s, the only thing it needs is more leather.
2: We have weirdly sort of entirely passed Spider-Man's origin. Mm. And I do want to talk about that, mainly that Peter Parker is an absolute idiot. Mm. He's aware that he has been bitten by a spider. He is aware that the spider has been genetically altered. He's literally standing in a room with many, many scientists who could help him.
1: Giant lump on his hand.
2: Yes, a giant pustule on his hand. He goes home feverish. And instead of, like, he could be dying, for all he knows. Mm. And instead of asking for help from his guardians, instead of telling anyone about his problems, he goes into his room and passes out. Mm. And then when he wakes up the next morning, totally changed. The ability to see, the ability to shoot webs. He's fucking shredded. Exactly. He doesn't tell anyone. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going straight to the hospital. I want to know what happened. And you know what? It's a selfish call. Because if he could let those scientists know about the potential of those uh, spiders' venom, then... I super soldier serum. Well, not even that, but like, everyone's healthy. Everyone's buff. Everyone's got perfect eyesight.
1: Like there's the creepy web thing, but we can sort that out. I'm just saying they can
2: sort that out. Yeah, I'm just saying Peter Parker is like there is really no justification whatsoever for him not telling anyone about his being bit before he knows that it's given him powers.
3: And it's this, it's this big fuck off lump too. (laughs) Like it's giant. It looks like stuff's crawling around in it. So it's like tell somebody.
1: And here's the thing, too. If I wake up completely changed, able to su- shoot that shit out of my wrist somehow, I don't like orca- the organic webbing idea because of the body
2: horror of it. So, so it, the, the implication is that a hole opens in his wrist for a, a web as thick as a rope to shoot out of. Mm.
1: Yeah, that when he presses the sort of the the thumb joint area on his hand, that's how it releases like some sort of weird pus as soon as i, I have love that
2: you assume that his webs are hard and sticky. Parts. Well, what else would you call it? What is it's he coming out of his milk.
1: Cuz if he was really a spider, that's coming out of a completely different hole <laughs> in a completely different spot.
2: This this is sort of a problem with the um the artificial web slinger stuff though as well is like the quantity of it that he never seems to run out uh, and how much of it he uses.
1: Well, in in the films, we have the uh, construction of the web shooters. We have Tom Holland Spider Man working on the web
2: fluid. Well, yes, but like, how? Like, think about the sheer amount that he uses. Think of the, some of the stuff that he has—the giant webs that he creates, the webs that he creates to stop the train, the web that he creates, and the third one for him and Mary Jane to hang out on while they watch the stars. We're talking like kilos of substance coming out of him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, how is he? How is he not? completely drained of all energy after creating these elaborate web constructs. And besides, if any of that happened to me, I'd be concerned about when that, when these side effects, because they are medical side effects, are these things that I'm gonna have to deal with forever, or are these gonna run out at some point? Hmm. I don't wanna be slinging through Brisbane City, run out, then impale myself on something. You know what I mean? It's like, Come on, go to a doctor, Peter. Go to a doctor.
2: Well, a big part of it, and I do think it is underexplored by Raimi here, but a big part of the Spider-Man powers have always been sort of a metaphor for puberty.
1: Mm. Yeah, you're going through changes. You're at that age
3: when you start climbing walls and shooting webbing out of your wrists.
2: Well, yes, the, the sticky white webbing is clearly metaphorical.
1: It's like you're you're changing. You're becoming someone more physically capable mm. than you were before. You're becoming less awkward as you mature into an adult. You acquire precognition. You you have more responsibilities. Yeah, that you have to deal with.
2: And I don't think that's something that Raimi touches on as much as he probably. Should. Mm.
1: No, he seems more interested in just because we only get like what one scene out of high school.
2: One scene on a high school field trip and one scene at the high school proper.
1: If I'm one of those people in that cafeteria,
3: I'm remembering that day.
2: Well, yeah, think of it like like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because everyone at the wrestling match would be like, "Hmm, Spider Man, huh?" And you could trace that the guy who who he let the money get stolen from. He's got an axe to grind. You're telling me that (laughs) you're telling me that Bruce Campbell is not connecting the dots. He's 100% connecting the dots. Well, Bruce Campbell, I like Bruce Campbell because like, he's in the interviews and every he's like talking about how he gets irritated when people talk to him about his cameos in the Spider-Man movies because he's like, they're not cameos. I named Spider-Man. In the second movie, I defeated him. He wanted to get into the theater, but he didn't, did he? I, I stopped him.
1: I ruined his marriage proposal.
2: <laughs> well, he didn't do Peter that.
3: Peter ruined his marriage proposal.
1: Bruce Campbell... He defeats Spider-Man from being able to get into the theater in Spider-Man 2, goes through a redemption arc, and tries to help Peter at the restaurant. <laughs> Peter screws that up, then I guess we'll never know what was meant to be the finalization of his character in Spider-Man 4. Was he meant to help him out defeat the lizard?
2: Well, the rumor was that he was going to be implied to be Mysterio, and that they were all the same character.
1: And I do love that. Would that not have been beautiful? He's just
3: a workaday actor. He's got so many jobs, you know? <laughs> it's the gig economy. He has so many different jobs. I like that.
1: I would remember the weird kid shooting webs out of his hands, doing a backflip and punching a guy across the room. I'm going to remember that. We haven't talked about Kirsten Dunst yet.
3: Yeah. I think she does a good job here.
1: I think she's doing more interesting stuff on an acting level than Toby Maguire is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's more subtlety coming through in a lot of parts. But again, the chemistry just simply... She's like she's
3: the only normal person in the entire movie who's <laughs> going through the normal New York stuff. She wants to become an actor. She ends up working in a diner. Like, that's...
2: I think it's, it's unfortunate that she's sort of saddled with the least interesting element of the film, which is the love triangle stuff as well. Like, that's almost all of her scenes are to do with that.
3: Yeah. And I mean, in in almost every scene, she's basically saying to Peter, hey, look, I'm interested, but he doesn't
1: do anything. Like, when it comes to Spider-Man love interests, the chemistry just simply isn't there in, in the way that the obvious chemistry between Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone was there. They were in a relationship at that time, but that chemistry was incredible.
2: Or Tom Holland and Zendaya.
1: Exactly. They have chemistry too.
2: Toby Maguire's Spider-Man seems asexual.
1: He seems chaste. Like completely chaste. Him as a
2: figure is not something that you attach a romantic or sexual context yeah, to.
1: Because the only time he gains sort of like a lascivious interest in anybody is when he's under the influence of the symbiote. Hmm. In everything else, it's like there is there doesn't seem to be any like sexual component to his interest in Mary Jane, merely a romantic one. I love your insistence that he's, like, not a sexual being at all. He has more chemistry with the pieces at the start of number two.
2: He's got all the sexual charge of a priest. And I don't know what that is. Is that 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 Toby McGuire has no chemistry with Mary, with Kirsten Dunst and with Bryce Dallas Howard in the third one? Or is it that he has chosen, and he and Raimi have chosen a version of this character that is so sort of antiseptic and bland
1: It's back to that whole Silver Age tone for the character that I think they were going for. They're trying to go, this is a superhero, and go no more complicated than that. Because keep in mind, stories like uh, Spider-Man No More, they were approaching the modern age of comic book storytelling, but they were still nestled pretty comfortably at the end of the Silver Age, early Bronze Age of comic book storytelling. So... Characters were extremely chaste during Silver Age stuff. They really neutered the genre at that time.
3: Other than Superman, Superman got pretty freaky.
1: Yes, Silver Age Superman was kind of a demented lunatic.
2: (laughs) But I I don't buy the love triangle here at all either. Like, she doesn't even seem to like Harry.
3: No. (laughs) (laughs) No, no she doesn't. And there were so many moments where she's basically giving him the... She's giving him the eyes. Like, she's trying... Like, she says, you're not interested? And the look on her face is like, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not good at telling people's facial expressions and stuff. If there was going to be a moment, that's the moment, Peter.
2: Well, it's this stupid thing. It's something that I despise in superhero-related me- media. It's the, no one can know my secret identity, and I can't <laughs> let people get close to me because it might hurt them.
1: That's my burden. That's my
2: curse. I'm Spider Man. And you know what? It's a double standard. He, he he won't let himself get a girlfriend, but he's perfectly fine putting Harry in danger by being his best friend. Perfectly fine putting Aunt May in danger by still yeah. going to her house and visiting her. I mean, it's. Unless you're living in a hermit, as a hermit in the woods between your trips to New York to fight crime, I'm sorry, but it's a bullshit justification.
1: Exactly. Like, in fact, telling the people is a better way of protecting them because then they'll be aware of the threat. Hmm.
3: Telling the person gives them the appropriate context for your action so that you just don't seem like this flighty arsehole who can't commit to anything. If
1: you tell them that you're the superhero, you have an explanation for all the times you have to flake on social engagements.
2: Yeah. But I mean, thank God for Iron Man for getting rid of that I've got to keep my secret identity... And all of of that stuff, I mean, it got rid of it. It set the template going forward. I mean, what, Peter Parker is still the only one in the MCU who has to protect his identity? Not anymore. Not anymore, exactly. They got rid of it. And they got rid of it where it mattered, like the stuff with uh, with Jacob and Aunt May. Like, they they got rid of that stuff really, really quickly when they started doing that. Yeah. I I really don't like it. It's my least favourite part in the whole... Uh, and it and it goes beyond stuff like like Charmed. That was the stuff I never liked about Charmed was that, Oh, we've gotta do this like weird hijinks routine to keep people from knowing that we're witches and to can't let Darul know. Yeah. And it like would would inevitably end up as like some weird Mrs. Doubtfire routine where they were like trying to juggle both things at the same time, you know?
1: So you can keep the secret from the f- the public, obviously, but let the people who give a shit about you and you give a shit about in on this. It's not only really silly on an intellectual level to keep it secret from them because if they know they can plan accordingly. Yeah. But it's also emotionally dishonest. And throughout this trilogy we see Peter pay that price for his emotional dishonesty.
2: Hmm. Let's talk about Uncle Ben too, uh that poor old man.
1: <laughs> poor poor old man. He's just he's trying his
3: best, isn't he?
2: Yeah.
3: Look, see, this is the thing
2: actually, like, for as good as I think Rosemary Harris and Cliff Robertson are, as, and as good as Sally Field and Martin Sheen are, as Aunt May and Uncle Ben, I do think it's like, they have gotta be like great uncles and great aunts, right? Cause, I mean, that, the, uh, the Holland one was, Marissa Tomei is the first time that that's actually cast age appropriate. Yeah. For her to actually be his mother's sister, or his father's sister.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a whole thing. I think Martin Sheen was fantastic as Uncle Ben. My, he's my preferred Uncle Ben. But I think that the Aunt May in this trilogy just perfect. She's just exceptional. She just has it. She's she's like the
3: Alfred from the Burton Schumacher Batman movies. Just kind, warm, gentle, just nice. They're just nice people.
1: Like can't be emulated. No.
2: That The way that Uncle Ben's death is handled here is, I think, quite strong. Yeah. It has emotion, and that's not something I can say about some of the other supposedly emotional scenes in the film. Again, we just got off talking about MJ and Peter and <laughs> that stuff.
3: Toby Maguire, he is so good at crying on screen. Like, when you see him crying, he is fucking sobbing. He is putting it out there.
2: He does the the ugly cry blubbering thing, rather than the movie...
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I appreciate it when an actor just goes, hold on a tick, I'm just going to sob real quick.
3: Yeah, like, like they remove ego from the, th- from the proceedings, and are like, I'm just going to do this the way people cry when someone close to them dies.
1: Mm. And he nails that. Yeah. I think... The, the pace of the movie, it kind of breezes by, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, the action is really good. I mean, it sells the web-slinging, which I think was the biggest technical thing that it had to do. Uh, it was the the making a man fly in Superman. It's, it's this movie's version of that.
3: The one moment where it doesn't really fit for me was is when Peter saves MJ from the parade attack and is sort of carrying her, and you get that shot where you're seeing MJ's reaction to it and her face. and It's a mannequin, baby. He is, like, stiff as a fucking board. He is perfectly still. Side note,
2: why is a weapons manufacturer sponsoring a middle-of-the-day parade in Times Square?
1: Late-stage capitalism, my (laughs) comrade. Uncle Ben said there's two lessons I need you to carry with you for the rest of your life, Peter. One, with great power comes great responsibility and two, the purpose of capitalism is to prevent the worker from accessing the means of production. <laughs> anyway, then there's... I I think the the upside-down kiss is... The, the upside-down kiss is well executed. Like, it, it's very well done. But if I was Spider-Man in that point, I'd be like, she starts taking the mask off. It's like, hey, 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 no.
2: Well, it's apparently very uncomfortable for Tobey Maguire, too, because water was going up his nostrils, and he couldn't really breathe.
1: Yeah, the whole time he
3: should actually be going...
2: And I mean, these action sequences, the swinging and the the New York setting, it's got to to have felt pretty loaded at the time, considering it's coming out, what, eight, nine months after 9-11 happened? Yeah. And you certainly feel it, especially that scene on the bridge at, at the end with all of the New Yorkers gathering to throw refuse at the Green Goblin. I mean, I I, I I, don't know whether that scene predates 9-11 in terms of its appearance in the script or whether that was something that was sort of added to kind of capture a community spirit after the fact. I don't think it really works. I think it's the cheesiest moment in a, in a movie that's already really cheesy. The one in Spider-Man 2 works better. Yeah. Oh, yeah, much, much better. A bit on the train, yeah. But, like, I, I, I think that it any, any emotional weight that it might have is kind of let down by the writing.
0: Come on up here, dumb guy! I got a little something for you! Leave yeah, Spider-Man alone! You got a big kind a guy trying to save a bunch of kids? Oh yeah, I got something for your ass! You mess with spider You mess with New York! You messed with one of us! You mess with all of us!
2: And and the the way that the Goblin reacts like he's the Grinch on Christmas morning, I don't think it's an incorrect instinct to highlight that sort of incredible community strength that was being displayed around that time in New York. But I think that the way that it's done is just so clumsy. I think the
1: web swinging, like you said, is very effective. It's not as effective as some of the later films, obviously, but it's still really, really great stuff. And there is nothing quite like seeing Spider-Man just swinging through New York City on film. There is nothing that that's quite so exhilarating as seeing either the web swinging from spider-man or seeing superman flying or seeing the flash run really really fast it's it's it just feels great when it works
3: what what's your opinion of the danny elfman score
2: again this is not going to win me any friends i think it's kind of like elfman being a bit of generic elfman like it is an elfman score but i can't hum the main theme i like that that sort of It's not his best work.
3: His best stuff is definitely in more gothic-centered arenas. Listen to Danny Elfman's new album, Big Mess. This is not a sponsored thing. I listened to the whole thing, and it's pretty good.
2: Shit, we wish we had a Danny Elfman sponsorship. (laughs)
3: The the one exceptional piece of score in this movie, and it is truly exceptional, is what I call the responsibility theme. The, The leitmotif that is put in moments of taking of when peter realizes what spider-man is meant to represent it is meant to represent someone with the ability to help going the extra level and helping
1: quite evocative. It's not my favourite Spider-Man music. That would be from Amazing Spider-Man 2, the Hans Zimmer stuff, but it's very effective. I also like the Christopher Young stuff, like I mentioned in the what we've been watching.
2: Well, it feels like we're reaching the end here. Is there anything you guys would like to add?
1: Macho Man Randy Savage?
2: Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> such a weird cameo to have.
3: Yeah. And it's just such an amazing... set. Sa- Amazing Sam raimi to put both Bruce Campbell and Macho Man Randy Savage in the same scene.
1: I just really do like this movie and like this trilogy. They're some of my first superhero films and...
2: Which came first for you, the superhero movies or the comic books themselves?
1: Movies. Films. It's the films. The films... Like, by that time when I was growing up, there, there is, one, no superhero more marketable to kids than Spider-Man. Yeah. It is... Simple fact. And it's the films and the associated products that really sparked my love for superheroes. And then I started getting into the comics, started collecting the old school stuff whenever we go to like swap meets and stuff like that. And really my love for the stuff has really grown from there. And I can thank Spider-Man for being kind of the start of that.
2: Because you would have been how old when this first movie came out? Well... Five?
1: Yeah. And, like, we had the toys. We had the Spider-Man toys. We had all of that stuff. And Tobey Maguire's my classic Spider-Man, you know? I like other versions of Spider-Man more as I've matured, but there's something so simple about the Amy films, you know? There's a, there's a simplicity to it that, like, in times of turmoil, you can go back to them and see just the... Simple, easy story of the fight between good and evil and about responsibility.
2: Uh, all right, before we leave, there are a few entries in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. Okay. Mm. Mostly some creepy stuff in the sex and nudity section that I highlighted because it's kind of creepy. Yeah. When Mary Jane gets mugged by some creepy guys, Spider-Man fights them off in the rain and Mary Jane's shirt gets wet and you can see her nipple through her shirt. Mary Jane's cleavage is visible almost throughout her scenes. The, see, that I just think that's weird, the fixation on that stuff.
1: Yeah, it's...
2: Like, it's not in the spirit of what, that, what the Parent's Guide is for.
1: It is both weirdly puritanical and deeply, deeply lascivious. Yes.
3: I do love how you're sort of... You're trying to stand up for the standards of the IMDb Parent's Guide.
2: The Parent's Guide is a concept. It's not a bad one. It's there to alert parents to objectionable content what is being described here is not sex and nudity like i like to
1: call it a judge claude frollo approach <laughs> to sex and nudity
2: well the only other one here this week is in the alcohol and drugs section which is norman uses performance enhancers near the beginning of the movie yes yes he does so before we go why don't we each go around and say who our MVP is for this movie and what our favourite scene or sequence is. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP is Willem Dafoe. Like I said during the body of the podcast, I think he is the one that is matching Raimi's tone perfectly. He's the one that's walking that line in the way that you really want the whole movie to walk that line, really, but it doesn't. He is a weird choice for the role, but he's also perfect. He is... Theatrical and emotional and he conveys depth in that character in a really interesting way. So yes, Willem Dafoe. In terms of my favourite single sequence, I will go with the scene where the goblin dies at the end. That's a really effective scene between Peter and the goblin. I think that you get some great, like, Willem Dafoe stuff. It's, it's, it's a good scene. It's a nice culmination to the movie. Instead sort of, like, it, it's a victory for Spider-Man, but a defeat as well, which is an interesting way to go about it. So, yeah, I'll go with that. What about you guys? What about you, Harley?
1: My MVP, again, would have to be Willem Dafoe here. The Goblin is such a significant Spider-Man villain. Like I mentioned before, the Green Goblin is the villain who hurts Spider-Man the most. And to really nail the the voice and the physicality for the Goblin are two very important things that one has to nail when they want to play the Green Goblin. Pretty much all the other actors, um, James Franco in the third movie when he was the new Goblin, and Dane DeHaan in Amazing Spider-Man 2, they both nailed the Green Goblin as well, but it does feel like they're coming off of what Defoe did.
3: They're standing on the shoulders of Defoe's performance.
1: When Defoe set the standard for what the Green Goblin can be on film, what... Let's just be fair, he set some of the standard for what supervillains can be in these movies. Complex. Emotional. This isn't going back to some shit like Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor's real estate scams. Like, this is the st- real start of that complex.
2: Well, Magneto is probably the real start of it.
1: Well, Magneto notwithstanding, hmm. um, it's Magneto and Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin. That started really digging into the psychology of why these villains do these things. They're not purely evil. They are complicated and do awful, awful villainous things. Willem Dafoe's is fantastic. He nails it the whole time. My favorite scene is the bridge, and the the as wonderfully stated by the Green Goblin. You'll never know when a villain will come along and present you with sadistic choice yeah spider-man the green goblin on a bridge is always something that gives me chills i i i think the death of gwen stacy in the comics was part of the death of innocence in comic books
3: the evocation of that is very powerful
1: the evocation of something so significant is very effective to me and plus it's a pretty good action set piece it leads into that final confrontation with the Green Goblin, and it's just great stuff. The way that the Green Goblin dies in this film is how he died the first time in the comics. Impaled himself on his glider when trying to kill Spider-Man in a really underhanded, dicky way. It's it's very, very well done. I just really liked it. Like those moments.
3: And for me, I'm giving it to Sam Raimi. Because of all of the reasons you don't like the tone, Lawson. I love that it is unashamedly, unabashedly Raimi's vision of this, along with the writers as well. He just manages to capture comic book energy to me. Like, classic comic book storytelling. This isn't Frank Miller, this isn't a graphic novel, this is comic book. And I really love that. He does it in all three films, and I hope he continues to do it in the next Doctor Strange.
2: Yeah, it will be interesting to see, given that Marvel exerts such control over its own house style. Mm, yeah. And also the fact that he won't be the f- one of the first ones out of the gate now. He will be contributing to a genre that has had many, many entries and has developed quite a bit since he was last involved in it. But...
3: Yeah, I just love Sam Raimi's work, I've always loved it. Every time I get the opportunity, he will be the MVP for any of his movies. And for my favorite scene, I I also give it to the Death of the Goblin, simply because of the effect it had on me when I was young, and it, he, that's the character that got me interested in villains, in terms of their motivations and the like. And it's just a well-put-together sequence with a few raimi to keep it light and, you know,
1: quick on its feet. So I go with that. Yeah, it's a very light and breezy movie. What have we got next week?
2: Well, next week we'll be talking about another famous intellectual property that was very important to our childhoods and also has a somewhat strange tone in its debut on the live-action big screen. We'll be talking about Scooby-Doo the 2002 live-action Scooby-Doo. If you would like to follow along at home, it is available for streaming on Netflix, Binge, and Foxtel Now in Australia. It is also available for rental and purchase on the Apple, Amazon, and YouTube stores. Also, be forewarned, if you are one of those low-cultured people who do not like Scooby-Doo 2002, uh, we are not going to be picking on it too much. It is, we, we like it. This isn't going to be something where we're dunking on it for... An hour. We deeply adore this film. Hmm.
1: It's important for us. If you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy county You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. If you want to reach us and give us episode specific feedback and movie recommendations, you can contact us through our Twitter. Uh, the link to which will be in the description wherever it appears on your podcast, Step of Choice. Like I said, movie suggestions, we'll take them. TV show suggestions, we're still swamped in that area at the moment. Uh, So, just hold hold off on those for uh, a while. And the best place to give general feedback is commenting on your podcast step of choice. Episode-specific feedback is best left to the Twitter. Uh, We'll also take the recommendations that go to the podcast apps. But please do like, comment, and subscribe. It's how I find validation, generally speaking, in my life. The vast majority of the machines are benevolent, or at least attempt to be. However, their AI emergence has a catch. It's a pretty big one. When a being becomes aware of themselves and their place in the universe, there is always the possibility of that being succumbing to the void. The machines, like all sapient and thinking beings, can go mad when confronted confronted by the inherent pointlessness of existence. You know the questions. Why am I here? Who am I? Is Martin right in saying the MCU is killing cinema? Some machines, like people, create their own purpose, be it through work, philosophy, family, both natural and found, or even scripture. Many of the machines who fail to do so either trap themselves in logic loops where they will wrestle with the eternal questions until the world itself falls still and cold. Others get a little buck wild. And by a little, I mean a lot. (laughs) I have been Holly Lewis.
2: I've been Lawson Keeney.
1: And I have been and will continue to be Jean Lewis.
3: Oh and the
0: seed that are here, the sea that the here, that are watching us. sea are watching us are they are watching us, they yes, are they're watching us. Watching us, Watching us. As we all fly away. Yeah. Whoa.
1: I had to beat an old lady with a stick to get these cranberries.